This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast bringing you an in-depth interview you won't hear anywhere else. And this week, I got to catch up with Don Gogel. He's a legend in the private equity world, been investing for more than three decades. He's ending his tenure as the CEO of CDNR, Clayton Dubillier and Rice, one of the best-known firms out there. They've owned a whole host of businesses. It was a wide-ranging conversation about the markets right now, about the history of private equity, where it may be going, even some of what he's learned from working with some of the world's most famous CEOs. Here he is. So, Don Gogel, you've seen some things uh, in your time in the private equity business, and I want to talk about your career in a few minutes, but let's start. Safe to say, I think very few would disagree that we're in a period of chaos right now across the world, Um, politically, economically. We've got protests in Hong Kong. We've got a trade war with China. We've got Brexit going on. We've got a political environment here in the United States that is volatile, to say the least. What's the role that private equity plays right now in August 2019? I think private equity can be a bit of a buffer during these periods. Now, to be fair, private equity firms, virtually all of them, right, are not foolhardy, and they don't say, well, we're just going to buy on a downturn. And in fact, one of the challenges that private equity has now to play that buffer role is it's harder now to deploy capital than it's been in a while. Hmm. And I say that because notwithstanding the chaos, valuations in private equity transactions, as you know, have remained stubbornly high. Now, they've been growing over the last four or five years. You can't reverse the laws of supply and demand. And with all of the money that's been raised, as you know, the phrases, sort of uh, this sort of dry powder that's Mm -hmm. available, and the animal instincts of good private equity firms to try to put it to work, the equity values, the valuations have moved up and up, and it's harder to put money to work. The only way you justify it is if you see this not unbroken, but long-term trend up. And given the chaos in a number of industries caused by factors that we don't need to enumerate now, all you need to do is watch Bloomberg and you find out all of those factors. It's just harder to put money to work. Some of the technical factors, uh, though, are still favorable. Although high-yield fund flows have been diminished. In fact, I think there's been 38 straight weeks of people taking money out of high-yield funds. They're still available capital. It's a profitable product line. There's still investor demand. So the capital will still be there. There's plenty of equity there. Uh, So it's a matter of selectivity. But in these periods of time, there is a rush to businesses that seem to have a lower risk profile and that then the price gets bid up. So for us, and I'm sure many others, navigating your way to find the right transaction with the right risk reward, the right capital structure, the right management team, the right prospects, the right path through regulatory maze, uh, if it's a business like healthcare where we invest often, uh, it's complicated. Right. But I still view it as a flexible buffer that can normalize uh, economies and companies when needed. Right. 
you have the ability and probably the need to be talking to CEOs all the time, both CEOs of companies that you control, CEOs of companies you might want to control. You have a whole network uh, at your disposal. If you can generalize how the leaders of big companies and maybe small companies are feeling right now, what would you say? There's high anxiety, uh, and and appropriately so. Uh, anxiety about the economic and macroeconomic political conditions that you described. But I think public company CEOs feel under more pressure than ever to show at least some level of performance improvement. And it's, of course, a function both of stock market, which gives you a report card every day, activists that come in and let you know exactly what you're doing wrong and what they think you should be doing right, boards that feel that they have to respond to a lot of those pressures. And then if you look at the statistics, I mean, you, when I'm going to phrase it in a way that sounds shocking, but it's just, just math. If you recognize that about one in five Fortune, uh, S&P 500 CEOs change every year, that means that there's a CEO change in, in the S&P 500 about every four or five days. Wow. I, that's just... It's just math. Just math. So if you're the CEOs, you're looking at those numbers, and you're looking to the left and right, and you'd like to have eyes behind you, and, and it's not that you don't trust your board or that people are not going to give you some time, but it's just a measure of the environment that it's tough. And CEO tenure, therefore, is being reduced, and CEOs really... I think, have a tough job in public companies. It's tough everywhere. Leadership is always hard. I just think now the scrutiny, social media, activists, shareholders, 24 by 7, global, makes it very hard to be a public company CEO. Right. So speaking of CEOs, you are the chairman and CEO of CDNR right now. The CEO title you will relinquish uh, at the turn of the year. Succession in private equity is historically a pretty tricky thing. Your firm has done it several times now, will have done it several times now successfully. Uh, Why is it so tricky? Well, it is tricky. Uh, Private equity firms generally are organized and operate, at least initially, most of them as partnerships. And I say that not in the legal term as much as it's a group of yeah. people. People are complicated. They change high over octane time. people, I would uh they're, they're high <laughs> octane people. No one not a lot of wallflowers. The men and women in private equity have strong opinions and they should, right? The way that you succeed in private equity is to have high conviction in your investment ideas and what you think is the right way to run a company and who's the right CEO for a business. So keeping that mix and keeping that balance is a really important job. You know, when I became CEO, I thought that my most important job was to continue to do, make good investments. Mm-hmm. Joe Rice, who uh, preceded me, one of the founders of the firm, and he held that job for 20 years, said, well, you got to do deals, but let me tell you, what you really have to do is keep this partnership and culture working together to maintain sort of collegiality, support, and while at the same time, the competitiveness, the challenge, the animal spirits, and how you balance that, Don, is a full-time job. Yeah. Well, he was more right than wrong, as Joe typically is on everything. 
Yeah. And what has been, if you look back on your tenure, what has been sort of the mark of one of those cultural things that you've done? What have you instituted that you think really helped maintain that collegiality? Number of things. Uh, I think we've been able to have a multi-generational culture. Mm-hmm. We have people at Clayton Dubalier, if I include Joe Rice, in their 20s. 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah. Uh, and getting people to wa- sort of crosswalk among those generations to share experiences and energy. And it's not that people in their 60s have to sort of do it their way. I think it's a culture that says best idea wins. Mm. And that is a reason that I think we've been able to hold people for a long time. It's a very constructive culture, although it's challenging and it's competitive and you work too hard and there's too much anxiety, but I think people generally find that supportive. Winning helps, right? I mean, people like to be part of a winning team. And if you can develop a performance culture, you don't have to post who's doing what in the firm or who's successful. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. We're in a fishbowl. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the things that's remarked upon less in private equity uh, than it probably should be, we are held to account in an extraordinary way. We have investors who we report to, of course, and every five years or so when we raise a new fund, they scrutinize everything we did, every investment we made, every investment we didn't make, the people that we hired, the people, in our case, few that left, and they want to know everything about it. And so, they vote with their dollars. And they vote with their dollars. They're, they can get out. Yeah. And uh, you know the best firms, of course, have a long history of loyal investors. We've been fortunate with university endowments and pension funds and a, a lot of other private foundations uh, to have very long-standing relationships. Some of our investors go back 30 yeah. plus years. You have chosen as a firm to stay essentially, for lack of a better term, sort of a monoline private equity firm at a time when some of the biggest and best-known names, some of the other long-standing uh, names, KKR, Blackstone, Carlisle, Apollo, others, have chosen to become multi-asset, publicly traded firms. Why this path? Well, it illustrates something that I sort of set as the predicate here, which is private equity has ultimate flexibility. As you look at these firms across, there are 8,000 of them now across the globe, different strategies different sort of approaches to the market. And private equity in it itself encompasses everything from infrastructure, venture capital, early stage, late stage, distress, debt. I mean, there are a lot of strategies. A number of firms have decided that they like the cross-fertilization of having a lot of different strategies. We chose the advantages that we think are substantial of focus. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of industries that we invest in. We have a number of geographies that we invest in, but we invest with one partnership, one fund, one intense focus on performance improvement through operations. We staff our firm that way. Half of our partners are former operating executives from some of the best managed companies in the world. And we think it's a great advantage. We know we're in the minority of the top 20 uh, uh, PE firms. I think 16 of them are multi-line firms. It's proven to be a successful strategy. But if you, what you really care about is outperformance 
in building businesses, we've chosen a strategy that right. works for us. When you talk about the outperformance, it naturally leads to how successful many of the firms, including yours, have been financially. The work that you have done has become more and more public. It is drawing ever more scrutiny from politicians and regulators, Elizabeth Warren being the most notable and most recent. How much do you worry about regulatory and political risk here in 2019 and going into 2020? Sure. I worry about it. Uh, I'd be foolish not to. If I were a public company executive, I would worry about it. If I were a university president with an endowment, I'd worry about it. There's a lot to worry about. Now, that said, I hope that scrutiny is going to be fact-based, not just emotional. The risk is that it's not. But if you look at the numbers and you look at the beneficiaries, just a couple of examples that would be well known. You know, our public pension plans in the United States are not in great shape generally. And those firms, uh, those pension funds that invest in private equity have a 350 basis point uh, delta positive mm -hmm. over those that don't. Of the $100 uh, billion dollar investors in private equity, I'm looking at the investors now, about a third or more are pension funds. There are now close to 400 investors in private equity that invest at least $100 billion in the asset class and have reaped wonderful rewards, whether you're a teacher getting your retirement uh, uh, sort of funded or whether you're a university using some of the money to pay for scholarships. These are all positives, right? And if people look at the substance of job creation, which is higher in PE-backed companies, notwithstanding some of the sense that there are cases, which there are, where people lose their jobs, but they lose them everywhere. But total job creation of PE-backed firms is higher. Innovation, notwithstanding some contrary examples, private equity-backed companies end up, versus their comparables, investing more in research and development. And it's focused because they end up filing for more patents that are successful. So if you look at growth or you look at innovation, you look at overall sort of success of these entities to the end use customer. One of the thoughts are, gee, private equity must make their money by raising prices. Mm. That's bad for consumers. Well, pretty good database out there since there's so many transactions over the last 20 years. Private equity average price increase is about 1% a year. Now, that's something, but private equity is not raising prices on America. There are other things that are raising right. prices on America of commodity prices and tariffs and other things, but not private equity. So I don't mind the scrutiny. And by the way, the asset class does have some outliers and there is some bad conduct. Yeah. And I think there are ways to address that. Right. Uh, but the aggregate net gain I believe, for a lot of constituencies that need and want private equity is, I think, going to win the day. That doesn't mean there won't be a lot of noise, a mm -hmm. lot of criticism, and presumably some constructive changes, which would be fine. Right. And I think most responsible people running private equity firms would welcome that. Just as an example, the increased focus on ESG, 
Our firm and many others now monitor and report on our environmental activities routinely. We think our governance stands up against any textbook look at how you should respond to your constituencies. And our social engagement, both with the communities and the companies that we serve, as well as uh, in New York and London, where we have our headquarters, I think you know we can always do better. Right. Uh, and there are some things, particularly on gender diversity, racial diversity, uh, that are important to continue to work on. But you know these are all things that are sort of a net plus as we go forward. And that was Don Gogel, an important voice and investing maybe getting more important as there's more and more scrutiny, as you heard, about the world of investing. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm Jason Kelly, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.